just because we understand that chord sevenths resolve down by step, it doesn't make us any smarter or any less smart than any other musician out there. That's today's guest, author, scholar, and professor Philip Ewell, talking about how narrowly some of us can define what it means to understand, learn about, and appreciate music. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm leadership trainer and former band director Alan Fire, here with composer and co-college music education program coordinator Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about our guest. Philip Ewell is a professor of music theory at Hunter College of the City University of New York. His research specialties include race studies in music theory, Russian music theory, 20th century music theory, and hip-hop and popular music. His scholarship has been featured on Adam Neely's YouTube channel, in the BBC, New York Times, The New Yorker, and many other outlets. His monograph, On Music Theory and Making Music More Welcoming for Everyone, is currently available from the University of Michigan Press, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Find Philip's full bio, show notes, and resources at www.musicedinsights.com. Alan, what was the takeaway you had from this episode? It's hard to come up with one takeaway for this episode, which is why I think we have chosen it to kick off our third season. There's a lot here. Um, here, here's one thing. Some of Ewell's critics would have us think he wants us to ignore Bach and Beethoven. And I was glad to hear that's not true. Instead, we humanize them and put them into global perspective. What about you, Steve? What are your thoughts on this conversation? Well, you and the listeners know how much value I place on the episodes being under 30 minutes and packed with the greatest hits of the discussion, stuff that can be implemented quickly into classrooms or planning. This episode isn't going to fall into either category. It's longer, it's 50 minutes, and you aren't going to hear any specific idea for implementing a cool music theory lesson into your middle school music rehearsal tomorrow. This episode, in my opinion, is more important than that. This is, I hope, going to force you to question your own musical training, the values that training unconsciously or consciously instilled in you, and how those values are reflected in your day-to-day teaching. You also don't need to remember a thing from your college music theory classes. We don't talk about augmented six chords or anything like that. Dr. Ewell makes all of this very easy to understand, both in his book and in this discussion. I don't require my own music education students to listen to very many episodes of this podcast, but they all will be listening to this one. Yeah, this was super fascinating, and we will want to know what you listeners think also. So please let us know. And now let's kick off the third season of Music Ed Insights with Philip Ewell. Philip Ewell, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Well, you've written a book entitled On Music Theory and Making Music More Welcoming for Everyone. The title kind of implies that music making might not be welcoming for some people. Can you please talk a little bit about the title and what you meant by it? So on music theory, I needed to make really clear, because there are some controversial things going on in this book, that... I'm speaking about two things I know very well. One, music theory. I have a PhD from Yale University in music theory. And two, the United States is something that's not in the title, but it is American music theory. I'm not commenting on music theory from East Asia or something like that. I I keep saying those things because I want to make sure that I'm speaking about something I know very well, the United States and music theory. In terms of the not making it welcoming, that is something that I've been unpacking really for about five, six years now. Just the notion that when one goes through a music education in the United States, we really are still mired in a mid-20th century way of looking at music education, which focuses almost exclusively on a handful of composers, not from Europe, not from Western Europe, but really from Germany and Austria, with a few exceptions for France and maybe Italy. So we're talking about 20 composers. You all know the names, Bach, Beethoven, Chopin, Brahms, etc. But really only about 20, 25 names. Of course, they were all white men. And it's something that we have essentially been telling our students that they need to know in order to be great musicians. And I'm very much questioning that. And there's the, the non-welcoming aspect of music is essentially saying everything else aside from those 20, 25 composers is not as great which makes all of our students who may well who may not be from well Austro Germany and maybe France in fact that's 99% of our students right 
the musics of where you're from, including our own country itself, are just not that important. So there, there's a certain unwelcoming aspect if one does not focus on those 2025 composers, play the piano and do the things that have been taught since our music institution started in the 19th century. So when someone says something like, I only listen to music based on whether or not it sounds good, the reason we're studying Bach is because he was a genius, not because he was white or from Germany, or a C major scale doesn't have gender implications, or I don't really hear race in composition. What are what are some responses that you found to be effective? You know, some people just aren't going to have their minds changed, but for people who maybe are a little more open-minded, but are still kind of approaching it in that way? What have been some responses you found effective? First, I think I would highlight the notion that there has been a pretty significant paradigm shift over these last several years. I, I think, and it's also generational to a degree, I think people who are, say, under 40 years old studying music in the United States actually understand pretty clearly how there could be gender uh, or race implications in studying Bach and playing the piano, right? In other words, I think there are fewer and fewer people who question whether a C major scale can have anything to do with race, right? And I, I don't think you were saying that necessarily, but I just want to highlight the fact that it's getting a lot easier to make the connections because a lot of people are actually questioning these things, not just me, of course. But some of the responses that I would give, well, I would just highlight, uh, you mentioned a major scale, I think, right? C major scale, let's call it. Well, the uh, major minor scale system of functional tonality was, uh, of course, born in uh, Europe. It came out of an Italian tradition. So if we put in a year on it, it would be early 1600s, you know, maybe Claudio Monteverdi, Palestrina, who died in the late 16th century, I think 1595 was not so much part of that uh, functional tonal system, but already in the 1600s and then up through, like, say, Archangelo Corelli, clearly a functionally tonal composer at the in the late 1600s, right? And then, of course, you have Bach, and that's when it, where we're told where everything started because he was the first great composer. And, of course, he was uh, from Germany. But it's actually really easy to simply say, well, this was born out of this Western European, what we call a Western European system. And very much in the book, I question very deeply what both Western and European mean, because the West is a mythology, as I state in chapter two of the book in great detail. And even when we talk about European, well, that's a mythology too, because it erases all of the BIPOC populations that have been in Europe for centuries and even millennia. So Roma, Arabs, uh, Turks, uh, Sami, the uh, in, in indigenous people who live in uh, Northern Europe, uh, they all have their own musics too. So we're not even talking about European. We're talking about a very thinly sliced part of Europe that gave us indeed some very interesting music by composers such as Bach and Beethoven and Chopin. I quite like those composers. I don't like Mozart. I've said that many times. I just don't <laughs> like his music that much. The thing is with me, I'm willing to acknowledge that this is my opinion my dislike of Mozart. Whereas music education in the United States doesn't say that this is their opinion. They say, no, 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 this is true. This is fact. This is irrefutable. We've proven this. Bach is the best composer. Or actually, Beethoven is usually going to be cited as the, the greatest composer who ever lived, right? When in fact, it's just the opinion. It is the opinion of a very small slice of people. And it is, in fact, the opinion of the concepts of whiteness and maleness that have taught us these essentially false beliefs about music. Not, not false in the sense that Bach was a bad composer. No, he was a very interesting composer. False in the sense that other people's music and other composers from planet Earth are not as good and not as worthy of our attention. So there's the falsity of that premise. You mentioned it was a little bit easier to have this conversation with more open-minded, younger individuals. Do you have an instance of someone who was maybe relatively kind of set in their ways had been doing this a little while and you said sure yeah Bach is great but when we think about all of the music that's ever been created in the whole world or even just in Europe that's a very small slice that their eyes opened a little bit and they thought oh I, I hadn't really thought about it that way does that argument work even for someone who has kind of been doing it this way for 20 plus years of their adult life yes it does excellent question but very rarely, I have to be honest, Steve, I have no problem citing such a person here because it's in a very positive light. 
uh, I would cite my dear friend, Joe Strauss, my colleague at the CUNY Graduate Center, who was with me as I was doing this work some years ago, advising the project. We uh, gave part, He was part of this plenary panel that I was on in 2019 that kind of started this work. But in, in fact, I started this work some years before that. I, it was 2017, 2018, when I really started diving into this particular work. Um, and I can remember very clearly um, conversations that Joe and I had where, he, you know, he was kind of like hit. He's just like, good Lord, I, I never really thought about these things like that. Now, hang on, Phil, let's. And then we had these deep conversations. And uh, I have to be, uh, you know, I have to give him enormous credit because he was a person who was, as you said, set in his ways. He's done this for decades. He's a very esteemed uh, music theorist, as you probably know, in, in the field. And he really was um, self-reflective, open, and it was kind of an open heart, open mind. And he really did begin to make some changes in the way he thought about music. Now, Joe is exceptional. Um, it's, it's usually not that way for people who are, I'll, I won't say senior, that sounds uh, ageist. Uh, I'll say senior in rank music folks, right? Um, <laughs> people who have tenure. And, you know, sometimes they are, in fact, quite senior, but sometimes not. Uh, but senior in rank people, they're the ones who are most uh, indebted to the system as it is. They've made it, right? They've got tenure. They've got a, go a job tenure wherever they are. Uh, ho hopefully they're happy. I, I want everybody to be happy. But but then once you pass that, that uh, benchmark of tenure in your field, it's almost like you become... Well, I, I often say you become a, a full passport carrying citizen. Like if you're on a tenure track, you have a green card, right? And if you're in a grad program, you might have an H-1B visa, or you might literally have an F or a J visa, as, as foreign students often do in our country. Um, but once you get that passport, it's almost like, okay, now I have to teach my students that Beethoven was the greatest composer because I've made it. And that's just really mm -hmm. unfortunate. It's really very unfortunate. We are doing a great disservice to our students. It's never about teaching them that Bach and Beethoven were bad composers. That's what people say about me, like, oh, Phil thinks Beethoven's a bad composer. I'm like, no, I don't. I never said that. I don't think Mozart was a bad composer. I just don't like his music. <laughs> um, in fact, I'm glad you I'm glad you cleared that up. I, you know, because I used to dislike yeah. Mozart and now I like Mozart. And I think it's a reflection of my old age. Um, so I just want to make sure it was just a taste thing and not a value judgment because the kid did a nice job. Yeah, right, right. Hey, you know, anyone who's out there making their uh, ma making it as a musician, I give them all the credit <laughs> in the world. Of, of course, Mozart's dad, Leopold Mozart, was a very fine violinist and a fine composer himself. So, you know, Mozart would not like uh, Wolfgang would not have been Wolfgang without Leopold. Uh, I think we could all agree on that. But yeah, thanks for that question, Steve. Let's dig right into some of the the problematic sort of aspects of this passport system that you're talking about. Our listeners are primarily K-12 music teachers, most of whom receive degrees in music at a college or university and went through a K-12 schooling system that defined and taught music in some pretty prescribed ways. And these are, in a lot of uh, cases, the very first people sort of issuing the beginnings of what will be this passport system. The, the students they teach are going to get excited about music and decide, I want to pursue this and I want to eventually teach music. So I feel like they're a really important population as far as all of this goes. They're sort of at the, at the starting point in a lot of ways, the, those teachers and then, you know, parents. So how does this traditional American music training contribute to conscious or unconscious beliefs that we as educators might have about making music or teaching it to our elementary, middle or high school students? Another great question. I've had lots of back and forth with K through 12 educators over these last several years, and they've been some of my most interesting correspondences, communications, I, I have to say, of that time. I think that K through 12 folks essentially get it a little better than higher ed uh, college university professors. And I think that's probably because of what's embedded in your question, this notion that you're you're teaching the beginnings of music education, right? In a K through 12 setting. I, I have a 13 year old myself who's, who's going through some music ed in his schools, in, in public schools here in New York City. I mean, it's not like all of your students are German, right? <laughs> They're not all from Austria. 
So you, uh, you know, K through 12 folks, they have the students who are in the country. And that is 40% BIPOC, roughly about, you know, what white population in the United States is about 60%. It peaked, by the way, at about 90% in, in roughly 1940, uh, just as a data point. So now it makes perfect sense for K through 12 music educators to want to reflect the different musical traditions of the world because they see it in the faces of their students, which is great. And I get that in my communications with these K through 12 educators, but everyone who's teaching K through 12 out in the schools is learning it from people like me. They're still being taught, the K through 12 educators are being taught in our colleges and universities the, the, as you call it, the passport system. I, I mean, I, I said, you know, that, but, but you're calling it the passport system. I like that. And it's still part of, of what we do. I actually dialed up a quote from my book and I'll read it. Um, here's the quote. I'm always struck by how we in the United States can think of European music as intimately ours, but our own American music as foreign. A violinist in East Tennessee can learn all the intricacies of Tchaikovsky's violin concerto, written over 150 years ago, some 5,000 miles away, but never dare play that same violin in an Appalachian fiddling style, which happens right now in their own backyard. Our promotion of music theory's European quote-unquote supreme geniuses at the expense of so many American genres, and not just jazz and bluegrass, I had mentioned jazz just prior to this, and not just jazz and bluegrass, of course, has greatly impoverished our American music institutions. We can enrich them all by understanding not only that many American and other global musics deserve our attention, but that the European, again, quote unquote, masters were actually just composers, like all others, composers who wrote interesting music, also deserving of attention, but not inherently better, richer, or more complex than other musics of our planet. And I'll stop the quote there. So there, there are two things going on here. And actually, it gets into the distinction I draw between diversity, equity, and inclusivity work, which is now under fire, of course, in our country, and anti-racist work, which is really under fire in our country. <laughs> and uh, the, the two aspects of this quote that I just wrote are, number one, let's bring in bluegrass music into the classroom. And the people who believe in the passport system and people who believe that the 25 composers white men composers who are all dead now, of course, Europeans were the greatest. They're like, okay, fine, fine. Let's bring in uh, the Brothers Comatose. That's a bluegrass band that I, I, I follow. Let's bring them in and, and have them fine. Okay, we can do that. But that's number one. But the, the other side of that, the flip side of that is once you begin to, as I write, talk about the European master's as just actually composers like all others, composers who wrote interesting music also deserving of attention, but not inherently better, richer, or more complex than other musics of the planets. Once you begin to bring down Brahms to a human being, which he was, by the way, <laughs> just, just pointing that out, and speak about Brahms as a human being composer, again, he, which he was, uh, then that's very unnerving. It's it's not so unnerving bringing in the brothers comatose for a lesson or two. It is very unnerving to watch Brahms come off of his hallowed hilltop. Why was he put up on the hallowed hilltop? I can tell you why. Because of two things. White supremacy and patriarchy. That's why Brahms is on the hallowed hilltop. And when you begin to question why he's up there in the first place, that's when things can go south very fast. And uh, that's why I've I've received quite a bit of vitriol and attack pieces, which, you know, I, I almost take that as a point of pride, actually. The title of the book on music theory and your Ph.D., your profession, music theorist, um, I think on first glance for a lot of people, they're thinking, oh, my ear training, my solfege, my secondary dominance. But the book, to me, when I read it and so far our discussion today why not on music history? And I wonder if for a lot of our listeners thinking about it even that way, and, and this just hit me just now, I, I wasn't thinking about that as I was reading it, but if we talked about where we're really putting Brahms on a pedestal, does that really happen in theory two 
I mean, we see his examples, but I feel like where it really happened for me was reading The Grout. And you mentioned that a little bit in in chapter two as well. And I I imagine you have thought about this. Like, why not call it on music or on music history? How do you differentiate the two or are they just so related? Definitely related. The first thing I would say in answer to that question is, and I I haven't been asked it before, so thank you, is I I would probably call this book not a, a music history, but a history of music theory, if anything. There's certainly a lot of history in my book, but I am very much still focused like a laser beam on music theory. And I need to just unpack that a little bit for the listeners. You know, we music theorists, (laughs) we like to fashion ourselves as the brains of the outfit. Total nonsense, let's be clear, okay? Total, total nonsense. But we do, we think of ourselves as smarter, musicians than those who are bad at music theory. You know, a lot of times in music, you'll hear people say, oh, I'm really bad at music theory. And that's a lot like saying, oh, I'm really bad at math. And I always tell my students, don't ever say either of those two things. Okay, you might think it's true. And I might ask my students, well, hey, what's two plus two? Four. Oh my God, you're so good at math. (laughs) At least the math math that you need, the math that you need. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The math that you need in life. And um, but it's a really important point because music theorists really do in their heart of hearts believe somehow that they get it better. You know, they understand the structures. We're taught that right kind of kind of explicitly. And it has been uh, it's much, much to our own detriment, but it's really to the detriment of music education in the United States, just because somebody knows a music theory. I notice I'm not saying music theory in the abstract, but I'm saying right. a music theory, which in our case happens to be an Austro-German 18th, 19th century music theory, which is one of thousands, frankly, on our planet. Just because we understand that chord sevenths resolve down by step. Okay. Yeah. That's second species counterpoint. Yes, that's true. It doesn't make us any smarter or any less smart than any other musician out there. Of course, it's part of being a musician. I don't regret the fact that I know that in a certain situation, chord chord sevenths resolve down by step, which in terms of creating melodies is kind of useful. That could be useful across cultures, not the chord seventh, because I'm not talking about harmony here. I'm just talking about melodic writing. Uh, which is generally stepwise. Uh, we, we call it stepwise in this uh, passport system that that we've uh, talked about here. Yeah, I, I think I think one of the great masters of stepwise melodic construction is uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. I just wanted to <laughs> just wanted to advocate. <laughs> That's oh boy, he knew that chord sevenths resolved down by step. <laughs> he knew what the people wanted. That's right. That's right. They they didn't want it to go up. I mean, good heaven forbid. Come on. You know, you're right that this is a historical book in many ways, but I really do want to keep the focus on music theory and the history of music theory because of the points that I'm making here. This 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 false notion that somehow theory is more intellectual and more, you know, cerebral than I don't know, musicianship or than, you know, performing an instrument, for example. And I think that ultimately, if we could just think of music theory as talking about music, interpreting, performing, talking about music, we would be doing ourselves a great service. The second chapter, you talk about the white mythologies, Western canon, knowing not to know. Does any one of those or a couple of those stick out as, I want to make sure that our K-12 listeners kind of understand what this is, and maybe not even as it pertains to music theory, but it, it certainly could. Ultimately, I think out of chapter two on white mythologies, I would want any reader and uh, subsequently any music educator or any music student to understand, I guess, number one, that that whiteness is very real. Now, having lived through four years of Donald Trump and we're going to be living with him, uh, obviously, until he's uh, gone, Nobody in their right mind is going to deny that white supremacy and white nationalism is is actually a thing in the United States. There are those who would want to deny that still, but uh, it's more or less been proven time and time again over these last several years, right? In, in a post-Obama world, let's say. 
And as a black person, uh, you know, it to us, it's like, well, that's just our life, right? Like white supremacy is our life. And we've always known it. A lot of white people have, I think, in our history, really just tried to deny that whiteness is, is even a thing. But of course, white people know that they can identify as white and that there's less chance of being stopped by police or being killed by police, et cetera, et cetera. But number one, I very much would want people to just pull away. Yes, whiteness is a thing and we can talk about it. It's not about blaming the white race. You can't blame something that's not real in any tangible sense. It's important to understand that races are, of course, mythological themselves. They're made up. They're created by us humans. And it, the whiteness was created roughly in the 1600s here in the United States because it made a lot of sense to for people in power. And it, it made sense to separate and segregate. And it, people in power were able to enrich themselves very greatly, uh, of course, through you know land grabs of indigenous people and through free labor, chattel slavery. So that's number one. Number two, about chapter two, I would hope that the reader would say, this pillar of the United States of America, white supremacy and whiteness, absolutely influenced how we have conceived of music and how we have taught music in our country. It's not unrelated. It in fact is very intimately related. Now, a logical thing would be, well, how is it related? Well, I think I do a pretty good job in the book of making lots of connections. Of course, I could go through a long list of people who have quite literally said, the reason why functional tonality is better is because it was made by white people white people are smarter, and black people lack the cerebral formations. That's what Francois-Joseph Fétis said in the 1880s, roughly. A very famous Belgian-French-speaking uh, music theorist. They lack the cerebral formation to understand the complexity of tonality. It was very explicit. And then, of course, we have other people like John Powell or Heinrich Schenker. Of course, I talk about him a lot. Or Percy Granger or Carl Ruggles. All American, those last ones, Americans, Percy Granger, of course, was Australian transplant to, to the United States. John Powell, the author of the Racial Integrity Act, 1924 in Virginia, which gave us the quote unquote one drop rule, which said, if you have one drop of Negro blood, you are not white, right? He was a very influential pianist, composer, and music educator. Some strong ties to the University of Virginia, for example. How about Carl Seashore, the music eugenicist who worked with George Eastman, the founder of Eastman School of Music, 1921, who hired Howard Hansen. Also, I won't call him a eugenicist. I'll just say he wasn't a very nice person, Howard Hansen. And he led the Eastman School of Music from 1924 to 1964. And I'll just hop in there. I There are so many times during the book where it's like, oh, didn't know that, didn't know that, you know, got to the Granger <laughs> yeah. stuff, knew that. And you mentioned like, we got Wagner and everybody kind of knows that. But the Howard Hansen, and I was thinking, how many times have I played his music with my band and think it's great? Yep. And then I read that section and was just horrified. I had no idea. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's, it's you know, one thing that I think we can all see now very clearly is that whiteness as a concept is very good at stifling dissent and very good at, at, uh, at, at obfuscating, right? Confusing things so that we don't see what's going on. My goodness, we are witnessing a, a radical Supreme Court that's just raining hellfire down on our country now and, and has essentially placed a gag order on discussions of race in our country. Leading the charge, Clarence Thomas, folks, okay? So it doesn't, you don't have to be white to be anti-black, <laughs> I guess is the point there. On the one to 10 scale of anti-blackness, Clarence Thomas is a solid seven, if not an eight. And John Roberts is right there with him. Let, you know, he's not better. He's craftier in his anti-blackness, I will say that. It's really strange because in our country right now, we have these diverging things going on. We do have a Supreme Court and tens of millions of Americans who are just full bore denialism. It's almost like slavery didn't happen, right? And on the other hand, we have Nicole Hannah-Jones leading the way with 1619 Project and ta Coates and Ibram Kendi and these very interesting race scholars and Joe Fagan, uh, an elderly white gentleman whose language I used when I gave this talk on music theory's white racial frame, right? He's a white cisgender man and he gets it. We have people doing really interesting race scholarship which I usually say instead of critical race theory, because it just, once you say critical race theory, the computers just pick it up and then they start throwing crap at you. 
Basically, uh, we have these two divergent paths. How they come together, how we reconcile it, I do not know. That's going to be very interesting to see because it's not as if we are even talking with one another. And, and that's very unfortunate. I will say, though, that, and I think I was listening to a podcast with ta Coates, and the interviewer asked him, well, what do you make of what I'm calling two divergent paths? What do you make of the difficulties and the conflict? And he said, you know, I'm actually really excited by it. And I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. I'm not so excited by it. I do tell. <laughs> and he said, I'm really excited by it because when you get these really big things happening, these cataclysmic events, like the Supreme Court decision, we had Dobbs last year, and now we have the three rulings this year. It means that people are getting involved. It means that things are happening. It's like the 1960s, right? When we had civil rights legislation, we're not going to get that in the, in the immediate future, but five, 10 years from now, maybe we will have a new Voting Rights Act, which we desperately need, right? Because voter suppression and gerrymandering is killing our country. Maybe we will have a legislative version guaranteeing a woman's right to choose because the Supreme Court's not going to do anything at least for 10 years until we have a, a more balanced Supreme Court or an enlarged Supreme Court. But I think there is some excitement to this moment back to music education now uh, because there are people digging in their heels. No, Beethoven was the greatest. And that's what we need to teach our students. We need to teach them that chord sevens were resolved down by step versus a growing critical mass. And I would say over 50% of people, if you go down to, let's say, college students who, who may want to become K through 12 educators, there's way over 50% who are like, okay, this is ridiculous. We really need to start expanding out beyond Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms. I, along with many others, I'm assuming, first became familiar with your work when the Journal of Shankarian Studies, which I actually didn't even know that journal existed, but they published a response to your talk. To say, yeah, you don't subscribe to that thing. I, I, I don't, <laughs> but they published a response to your talk at the Society of Music Theory in 2019, which you referenced, and, and your book includes an extensive discussion on Shanker, which I, as a lover of music theory, very much enjoyed. I think many of our listeners either forgot what they learned about Shanker or maybe didn't encounter his work unless maybe they went to graduate school. But that being said, in that section of the book, you state that you are not arguing that we stop teaching the Shanker approach to music analysis. And I think that might surprise some people. And I believe your thoughts in that section are very much applicable to our music teacher listeners. So how are you suggesting that we as music teachers handle composers, performers, philosophers, theorists, whose personal lives we find problematic? I think the first thing I would say is listen to the person in question themselves. Listen to the artists themselves. Wagner is obviously very low-hanging fruit. Let's just take Richard Wagner and say, oh, well, he has these great operas. You know, he had this massive influence and the operas are so beautiful. Let's perform them. Oh, yes, but he was a really awful person. Oh, but that's not important, right? So that's a classic example of separating uh, the artist from the art. Well, my first response is, I know somebody for whom Richard Wagner's hatred of Jews and Jewishness was not incidental. It was not unimportant. I know somebody for whom Wagner's hatred of Jews was actually really super core to their beliefs. And that person's name is Richard Wagner. In other words, who are we to push away his words about his hatred of Jews in performing his music today? If Wagner were alive, he'd be like, well, no, no, don't do that. That's not what I want. My hatred of Jews is who I am. I wrote about it. He wrote about it until the day he died in 1883. So let's listen to the people first, okay? That's very important because the people who have this hatred and write about it and then create art, which may or may not be interesting art, uh, we're doing them a disservice. Now, are we helping promote their work by highlighting those connections that they themselves made? Probably not, which is why, obviously, we sever these connections. That's why we sever Heinrich Schenker's hatred of, well, I think everybody from his music theories, why we sever Richard Wagner's hatred of Jews and, well, everybody <laughs> from his operas, because now, later in the 21st century, it doesn't help. I often point out when making this point that we don't have to go back far in time at all. Let's go back 100 years to 1923. Schenker was alive, Wagner wasn't. When we go back and, and think about how music was taught 100 years ago, it was completely acceptable 
to talk about the superiority of white people, the superiority of the male gender, cisgender, obviously, and to simply out loud say, we couldn't possibly have a woman lead an orchestra. They're women. They can't do it because they're women. We couldn't possibly highlight Julia Perry's symphony on this orchestral concert and put it alongside a symphony by Brahms because she was a black woman. It is her blackness and her womanness that makes her inferior to Brahms, who was a white cisgender man. That was only 100 years ago. For heaven's sake, you really only need to go back 50 or 60 years to have people saying out loud those same things. Now, obviously, when Jim Crow racism just collapsed under its own weight in the 1960s and 70s, really going into the 80s, let's 1980s. And let me just finish that point. Jim Crow racism still exists today in 2023. But it became very difficult to just openly talk about the superiority of whiteness and the superiority of maleness. Those beliefs kind of had to go underground. But it's not like they went away. That's just silly, obviously. There are still many music educators in our country who believe that Brahms was a greater composer because of his whiteness and because of his maleness. They simply could never say that out loud. And they know that. We all know. That. They just say, no, I, it's not because of color or anything. His, it's just, it's great. It's just great. It's great. It's a, but I mean, those facile arguments, there has been a paradigm shift. My work, other people's works who do similar work, I would cite here Eli Hasama, uh, Lauren Kajikawa, uh, Kira Thurman, uh, Naomi Andre. I, it's a long list of people who are doing th these types of things has changed the dynamic such that when somebody says, oh, it's just greatness, people are almost laughing at that because it's just so silly. It really just sounds silly to say, oh, it's just, we're not talking about race or gender. It's just Beethoven, blah, blah, blah. And that's all they have though. That's all the defenders of the status quo have. That is the only arrow in their quiver. So I think it's really important to point out if we're dealing with quote unquote, separating the artist from the art that one, the artists don't want that, who did the art. They never wanted that. They never said, separate these ideas because I think it's bad. Heinrich Schenker said, no, 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 quite the opposite. Unify my hatred of Black people and hatred of Japanese people. He wrote about that quite openly. My belief that the man ranks above the woman. That's a verbatim quote from Heinrich Schenker. Put it right in my unified worldview and teach that. But of course, we didn't because later in the 20th century, that would have been a death knell to the teaching of Heinrich Schenker series. So that's why there's that impenetrable wall. And I didn't really answer the part, you know, what ultimately do you say? Well, of course you say that the people who were behind it wanted to keep those connections. In separating the artist from the art, we are at its core trying to confuse issues. We're trying to obfuscate. And we have to ask ourselves, why are we trying to do that? Why is it? that we have to separate so severely this from that. And the answer to that actually will, it's unsurprising to your listener uh, and anyone who's read my book, the answer is to keep the mythologies of whiteness and maleness intact and in control. That's the most important thing. Again, they're mythological. It's not, there's no blame. I'm not blaming you, you can't blame concepts, right? You can blame people and I don't even blame people. I don't like using that. I, I try to hold us all responsible and, and myself included and to hold us all accountable, myself included. I think that's the best I can do. Uh, it's it's a very difficult question, but but uh, thanks for that. It is. So how about this one? Why not just cancel Shanker altogether or in that same section of the book, R. Kelly or Michael Jackson? If this is so reprehensible, we can agree to that. And maybe there are other artists that do not have such reprehensible personal lives. Why can't we just focus on those artists, those theorists, and, and why not cancel them altogether? Well, thanks for that. I just actually, I had dialed up this part of my book when I gave my list of people who are doing similar work. I didn't mention Will Chang, my, the editor of the series, and Andrew Del Antonio, the co-editors. In answer to your question, I wrote, I've often been asked why I still support Schenkerian analysis in the field or in the classroom. Aside from the simple fact that there are many inspiring scholars who are connected to Schenkerism in one fashion or another, scholars who in no way themselves evince Schenker's horrific racism, there is another subtle reason. Such work allows for deeper conversations about difficult topics. And now I cite Will Cheng's really interesting article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, Gaslight of the Gods, Why I Still Play Michael Jackson and R. Kelly for My Students. 
Will explains why he still generally presents the work of problematic figures in the classroom, because he says that engaging with such figures, quote, is not so different from feeling uncomfortable and trapped in a relationship with a problematic partner, Hmm. close quote. And, And he adds that, quote, our vulnerability to charismatic music or music theorists, I would offer, offers a key to understanding our vulnerability to charismatic people, institutions, and ideologies more broadly, close quote. So I love that quote from Will Cheng. And it's really important that we have these open discussions about Heinrich Schenker and his horribleness, for example. Let me put it this way. If we were to cancel a person like Heinrich Schenker because of his repulsiveness, well, then we're not giving our students a full picture, right? We have cut off something, a person who was undoubtedly influential in the history of music theory. That's without question. We've deprived our students of knowing that history. And it's an important history. And I think we should uh, teach it in its full. Now, I think practically speaking, from conversations I've had with people in the field, uh, Shankarian analysis is kind of going the way of the covered wagon and will be gone from graduate programs 10 to 20 years from now, I think completely. And it will become a part of what's called history of music theory in graduate programs. Now, that shouldn't surprise anybody. I could have never been born, Philip Ewell, and Heinrich Schenker and Schenkerian analysis would have gone the, the way of the covered wagon at some point. Anyway, that's just the passing of time, right? We don't teach Glarion's dodecacordon in our classes today, uh, nor do we teach Matheson or Bormeister. Um, they've gone the way of the covered wagon. And so would Heinrich Schenker with or without Philip Ewell. Did I hasten this process? Probably I did. Yeah. But I would I would highlight that Journal of Schenkerian Studies, Volume 12, turbocharged that process. I started something perhaps with Schenkerian analysis. They turbocharged it times 10. And they have only themselves to, uh, again, I don't want to use the word blame. Give give credit to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you, Alan. That's right. They have themselves to give credit to for the demise of, of the field that I think that they love. Not that I'm calling for it. Not at all. And that's a great point that you made, Steve, uh, in that question. So maybe Schenker isn't the best example because it might be, like you said, going the way of the covered wagon in 20 years. Is there someone that you can point to, like Wagner or Granger or Michael Jackson, or whomever, where you would say, this is good stuff. They created great art. They had important contributions. I like the music, or I like the theory. I like the thought. Terrible person. (laughs) Mm. Does that exist for you? Or is that so difficult to separate those out that it's impossible to enjoy or appreciate the art? Oh, man, that's a good one. You know, I don't know. I sometimes tell the story of I had these um, portraits that I got in Russia of quote unquote great composers. And it had all the names that you know, but then some you wouldn't. And they were Russian Soviet. So, you know, you know, Mussorgsky and you know, Tchaikovsky, but you might not know Edison Denisov, or you might not know Gavrilov or Radion Shedrin. These were, in fact, Radion Shedrin, I think is still alive. But, you know, I had 40 of them, of course, but I had Bach and Glinka and Beethoven. And one day in my office, I sat up there and I looked at them and I looked at Wagner and I'm like, oh, my God, what an awful person. He was such an anti-Semite, et cetera. And then I looked at Glinka. I'm like, oh, he was anti-Semitic. Then I looked at Mili Balakirev and I'm like, oh, he was the most anti-Semitic person I think I've ever. And I looked at Stravinsky, anti-Semite. Tchaikovsky, anti-Semite. Frederick Chopin, anti-Semite. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing here with this pantheon of anti-Semitism in my office? I tell this to students occasionally, and then I tell them what I did. I put on Radiohead, one of a band I like, and I took down that pantheon of anti-Semitism, and it was a great day. And, and then I add as a little tag, I said, and if Tom York or anyone else in Radiohead is anti-Semitic- I was just going to ask that. Please don't tell me because yeah. I don't want to know. <laughs> because once you know, it's very difficult to separate. And there you go. That's the question. I mean, it would be really hard. For me, like, I, maybe Michael Jackson is a great example because his he was such a talented musician. Oh my God, he was just really an amazing musician. And then once you, what is it, Finding Neverland, the the documentary? What's it called? Yeah, yeah. That um, which I just can't watch. I you know, but uh, but I know uh, you know I I know what it proved essentially. It's a tough watch. I'll save you. <laughs> I bet, but. I have to be honest, I don't listen to Michael Jackson the way that I did. But it wasn't like I put on his, you know, music every other day. But now it's kind of gone for me. So maybe I can't. I don't know. Maybe I can't. 
I mean, it's easy with someone like Mel Gibson, who's a really awful, repugnant person. And I'm like, I don't really like his movie. So, uh, you know, Mad Max way back when that was fun. Right. But anything after I'm like, no, it's not really that good. So I'm a brave heart. Give me a break. You know, I was like, nah, nah, nah. But I, I don't know whether I could actually make that connection if I know what I know as a humanist and an egalitarian, that which is what I strive to be. I strive to be as anti-racist as I can and anti-sexist as I can. I don't know that I can actually let people like that into my own um, brain and, and allow them to flourish. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but I very much appreciate your ability throughout this conversation, which could have been very depressing, (laughs) that your ability to sprinkle in the glimmers of hope that you have for the future and reasons why we can think this situation might improve. And certainly your contributions uh, are helping with that. Do you mind uh, if before we let you go, we ask you five lightning round questions on some lighter topics? You absolutely can do that. And I do have some optimism for music education in the country. I like to say that I'm a bottle of hand sanitizer, half full kind of guy (laughs) when it comes to music education. So yeah, go ahead. Uh, If it's possible, do you have a favorite restaurant in New York City? Oh, absolutely. That would be one very near where I live in Bay Ridge. It's it's called Tannerine, T-A-N-O-R-E-E-N. Middle Eastern cuisine. The owners are Palestinian. Absolutely fabulous food in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. How about a piece of music, composer, or performer that you wish more people knew about? One I'm going through uh, his music now quite a bit. His stage name is Kishibashi. He's Japanese-American. Uh, Kishibashi, B-A-S-H-I. Multi-instrumentalist, great violinist. Uh, he dropped out of Cornell University, I think. Uh, one of my favorite songs of his is called Manchester. And I came across that song because it was the credits music for this very sad and amazing documentary about Mark Andre. I forget his name, but it, the, the documentary is called The Alpinist. And it's about this person who just soloed up ice cliffs and, and rock climbing and all that stuff. And I won't spoil the documentary uh, called The Alpinist. Kishibashi's music is at the end of that. Manchester is the the title of that song. And then I just fell in love with that artist after I dialed him up. How about a favorite film or TV series you've enjoyed recently? My wife and I just finished the first season of Silo. I really really love sci-fi, science fiction. And I think one reason I... I know a lot of BIPOC people who really love sci-fi. And I think one reason why we BIPOC love sci-fi is because you know, racism's kind of not a thing so much. Of course, it, there are a lot of, uh, you know, subtext where it still does play out. But, you know, you can cast anybody. Oh, my gosh, there's a disabled Asian woman who's the captain of the ship or something, right? And Silo is based on a book of novels by Hugh Howey. It stars Rebecca Ferguson, the Swedish actress. Uh, don't tell my wife I've got a little bit of a crush on <laughs> Rebecca Ferguson. <laughs> oh, no, I said it on a pod. <laughs> uh, it's a really it's a really neat series, Silo. Uh, it's about a big silo in the earth, and, and it's about 200 years forward. Of course, it's post-apocalyptic. Everybody has 10,000 people live in a silo underneath earth. And if you go outside, you die because the air is really bad. Because, of course, we we blew up the earth, which is actually happening before our very eyes. So that's my bottle of hand sanitizer half empty take on what's happening today. <laughs> How about the most memorable live music performance that Dr. Philip Ewell has attended? Oh, my goodness. Uh, That would probably be uh, there's a massive festival in East Tennessee called Bonnaroo. It's a mass all these huge fields, big stages, over 100,000 attendees back in. Oh, God, 2006, seven, eight, no, 2005 or six, I'd say. The headliners were were Radiohead. I mentioned Radiohead. Also, Tom Petty. I got to see him before he died. But I think that the one the 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 performer that I saw there was Common. Oh, by the way, Common's one of the main actors in Silo. But that's the performance. Common came on at like two in the morning and we had been there watching music live since like 10 or 11 in the morning, all through the day, all types of debauchery. I won't get into what, what was going on, but I'll just say that my wife was there. Okay, thank you. And um, and everybody, all my, me and my friends just kind of passed out and I'm like, no, no, we're going to see Common. And he literally came on at 2 a.m. the next day. And I was just like completely, you had to stand if you wanted to get anywhere near because there were a lot of people. I was like, yeah, Common. It was fun, though. (laughs) And finally, book recommendation for our listeners and a special bonus if it doesn't have much or anything to do with music. 
Oh, that's great. I just finished uh, a couple months ago a great book. Uh, it's by Eli Mistel, M-Y-S-T-A-L. It's called Allow Me to Retort, colon, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. He's got an undergrad and law degree from Harvard. He's a black guy. He's the main lawyer for The Nation magazine. And it's a great book if you want to try to understand the U.S. Constitution from a, a different perspective, because it's not like when those 55 people got together in Philadelphia in 1787 to write the Constitution, that they represented this rainbow coalition of Americans. And over here, we have the Lenape constituent over here, and they're all women. And over here are the Scottish people. And, and here are the Cherokee. <laughs> no, no, no. They were 55 white propertied men, many of whom owned people. So I don't, I mean, do you blame them for writing a playbook that benefited themselves? I don't. That made perfect sense. I've said this a couple of times on, on Zooms or to my classrooms. I'll be honest. I would have written the same playbook. I'm not a perfect person. It's not like I could see into the future. And they, they, they did debate slavery, actually. Let's give them some credit. They debated slavery in 1787 because they could see that other countries of the planet were getting rid of slavery. They could see the abomination. And they didn't actually have the courage to stand up to those who wanted to keep slavery and say we needed to get rid of it. It took, you know, another 70 years, 60, 70 years and, and a civil war to do that. But at any rate, uh, Eli Mistel unpacks that constitution written in 1787 like none other. So highly recommend that book. Bill Ewell, it's been a pleasure to visit with you. I hope we do a part two. I want to talk more about uh, pop culture in music education and in our world and in your work in anti-racism. I want to talk more about science fiction. I want to talk more about Kishibashi. I love discovering somebody else who has also discovered Kishibashi because uh, I'm with you. It's, it's uh, some of the best music people haven't heard. But, yep. we, but we have to leave it there. Let's do this again, though. Thank you for being on the show. It's been a real uh, pleasure, and thanks for the invite. Uh, this was fun. Thank you. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. Reach out to us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's musicedinsights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by The Normal Design. Helping normal companies and normal people create memorable, meaningful, and professional designs and branding. Learn more at thenormaldesign.com. Also, Winterset Websites. Website design and maintenance, wintersetwebsites.com. Group Dynamic, a leading provider of youth leadership workshops. Allen works with dozens of schools each year to help develop their leaders. Learn more at groupdynamic.net slash youth hyphen leadership. Or you could email me at alan at groupdynamic.net. Also sponsored by the Co-College Music Education Program, they've got a website too. Just click on the link at our website or email me at shanley at coe.edu. New episodes generally drop every two weeks on Monday. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights.